Welcome to another edition of the Learning Reinvented podcast, brought to you by myself, James Politilo, and the team at The Learning Effect. Today, I'd like to welcome Adam Gibson to the podcast. Adam, welcome. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, thanks, thanks, James, and it's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to be joining you. Um, so, I'm Adam Gibson. I'm a consultant in strategic workforce planning. It's been my focus for a number of years, and I've led workforce planning, people analytics and talent management across a number of different organizations and have uh, recently uh, recently finalized my book, Agile Workforce Planning, which is all based on my methodology and approach. So, Adam, we wanted to talk to you because workforce planning is one of those things that's a term that for some people can be a little bit hazy. So what does it mean? What is workforce planning? Uh, workforce planning is definitely one of those things where you could take 100 practitioners, ask them, the, ask them that question, and they'd come up with 200 different answers. For me, workforce planning is fundamentally about trying to create the right mix of work and workforce in order to that an organisation can achieve its strategic objectives. Breaking it down, um, it's it's about trying to find the right workforce, and I talk about what I call the seven rights. Right at the heart of that is this concept of capability. So that'll be the combination of knowledge, the things that we're able to access readily in our heads, skills, the things that we practice, mindset, how we think and feel about the things that we're about to do, our physiology, because certainly some things that we might need to do will come from a physical standpoint. And finally, environment, often overlooked, but I think we'd all appreciate that a great environment and a poor environment on whether you can be successful or unsuccessful in bringing a capability to bear. So to that concept of right capability that sits right at the centre, we then start thinking about um, our other six rights. So we think about the right size. Have we got the right number of that capability? We think about the right location. Is it in the right geographic location? And is it in the right structural location? We think about the right time, not only the time at which we need it, but the duration that we need it. We think about the right cost, the financial cost and the opportunity cost of using that capability in a different way. We think about the right risk. What are the things that could happen and it leaves us exposed to based on the choices that we're making? And finally, the right shape. How do all of those capabilities gel together? How do they combine? What are the subsets of those capabilities that we'll need to make sure that we've got the right levels that they align together? Do we have the right number of managers to workers? Um, when we're thinking about concepts like diversity and inclusion, what are the targets that we might have around those things? And where are we now? And how do we bridge, how do we bridge that gap? So those are the things that we think about when we start talking about this concept of workforce planning and how we can use that to make better organisations. So Adam, why is workforce planning so important? Well, in, you know, we've all gone through um, one of the, I think the biggest shifts and changes that we'll have been through in our lifetime with the pandemic. So organisations have been shocked in two different ways. They've been shocked on the supply side. So their workforce hasn't been able to work in the way that they have done previously their supply chains have been affected. So organisations that might be providing services to them haven't been able to provide those in the same way. Indeed, they've been shocked on the demand side. 
So their customers have changed and they are buying things in a different way. And for some, they're not able to access those services at all. So with those changes going on, organizations are now finding themselves in a place where they need to consider their future in a different way. Their future is a new future and everything that's going to happen isn't what they were thinking it was going to be six months ago, 12 months ago, a year you know, further. So when you think about those things together and an organization still wanting to be successful and still having objectives that it wants to achieve, still having a broader strategy and organizations having a purpose of why they exist, those things still remain. So workforce planning in the current in the current in the current setting allows you to start thinking about those things in the right way so that you had you can um, you can balance the work and workforce in the right way to ensure that you're able to achieve your objectives. It's quite interesting at the moment because like you said every industry is facing some level of disruption you know whether that's real challenge to the industry through to almost over demand so you know suddenly those you know amazon i'm sure is dealing with lots of demand that it may not have had or it's had a you know a big set of demand but it may be increased or healthcare provision is having to deal with new ways of working with extra restrictions etc so given that how how do organizations almost start tackling workforce planning or, or turn it into something practical if that's not something that's been called out before in how they've well, been operating and let's take both of those examples so if you look at it from from an amazon example um again back to the two back to the two shops so from a supply side perspective they've not been able their workers have not been able to operate in quite the same way they've need, now needed to work in a way that is more distanced and they've now had to have um, new safety measures so if you're looking at things from that perspective you now need to think in a very different way about how those workers can still work to be able to deliver the right outputs at the same time you've got what we would all recognize for amazon has been a significant shift in demand we're all at home Many of us not able to go out. If we want things, we're buying them from, we're, we're doing the one-click one buy. We're not going off to the shops. So demand has absolutely skyrocketed. So you've got people who are now having to work in a different way where you probably can't have the same volume of workers in the same space. And yet the, the amount, the outputs that they need to achieve have rocketed significantly. So how do you try and bridge that gap? You've got to bridge that gap by thinking very differently about how that workforce may be employed. Maybe you have to look at different, maybe you have to look at different shift models so that you're able to work to um, get people working in a different way to try and create the right outputs. But indeed, with a huge spike in demand, you've also got to try and recruit. So what um, what things that are probably being considered are, are there new innovations that will allow that will allow an organization working in that way? to be able to use technology that might overcome some of the limitations that people and safety will place upon us. But equally, looking at things like probably having to have new sites, new locations, and try and recruit a workforce into those locations so that they're able to, so that they're able to, to satisfy it. What I would suspect has probably been done is that an organization such as Amazon has probably got 
was has probably been operating at an ability of spare capacity. Why would you do that? Because every Christmas there's a spike in demand in exactly the same way for Amazon products. So they will probably have scaled themselves anyway so that so that so that they're able to social distance and they're able to increase the size of their workforce without having to purchase new sites. So if they planned in that way, they've got more greater ability to be able to do that. But then let's take the NHS as a different example. Um, huge surge in demand um, and again, restrictions on the way that people are working. So those things are still coming together in the same way. So what are some of the steps that, um, you know, that they have taken? From a demand side, they've clearly been working with um, the government to try and take steps that will I'll, that will mean that their demand peaks have been shifted. So that has been very much the theme of the lockdowns that those that the that by locking people down and reducing the spread of the virus, it wouldn't necessarily eradicate it, but it would mean that demand for hospital beds could be spread out over a longer over a longer period of time and that that demand would not hit at the same time as other peaks in healthcare demand which typically happen around the winter time. So they've taken steps around demand management by working with government in doing so. Um, equally, they are, they've been looking at very different ways of how they provide their services to the public. Uh, many people have found that appointments that would have been done in person are now being done virtually. Um, they're, they're, they're finding that they're being done in different ways um, and the services have slightly changed. So all those things are being done from a demand side, from trying to manage that demand. But equally on the supply side, they recognise that there's going to be a need for additional workers, additional beds. They've done that through the building of the Nightingale hospitals. They are increasing the extent to which they recruit. And indeed, I think it was their, their, chief, their chief nurse um, had made a plea to those who had left healthcare to ask them to return on a temporary basis during the pandemic. So they're the kind of steps that you can take when you start thinking about how we do things with the workforce. And that's very much looking in the, you know, in the short to medium term. Taking that, taking along the forecast and starting to think forward, that's very much the way that um, I help organisations to, to think and act, try and do those same steps, but do them over a longer period of time so that you can take action now that will achieve the right result for you two, three, five years down the line. So it sounds like it's a very holistic approach to looking at, you know, a workforce challenge, not necessarily looking through one silo. So where do you tend to find workforce planning sits in an organisation? Is it an HR function? Is it a business operation function? Uh, it, it, differs my in my experience it very much differs between organizations um, i have found it within business operations i find it within finance i find it within hr so it it, it sits in different locations and that often tends to be based on where it grew from so if you take um, a heavy operational organization um, both the examples of amazon and nhs being great examples they do a lot of having to schedule people by shifts. So as a result, they will have a strong handle on what I would, on what we might term resource management or resource planning. That activity that we would be doing over the next three months, certainly within the current financial year, 
And if you've got a strong capability along those lines, then your broad workforce planning capability may well sit within operations because it's grown out of that short term workforce management practice. With many other organisations, you might be looking at what we do the next financial year, what I call horizon two operational workforce planning. Now, we see this in organisations all the time. It's the budgetary process. So a finance department will often do that level of planning. They will fix things on the basis of budgets. And therefore, when they start thinking about how that translates into the workforce and headcount numbers, you might find that it starts within a finance department. It's often those organisations that are more forward thinking on a strategic perspective that actually generate it out of, out of an HR function. And therefore, when it starts within that area, your start point tends to be within um, to be thinking about people. And therefore, you start to approach it from that perspective of we need to be thinking about the right people we need to in, in order to ensure that the organisation is successful. What's great is where you can find some element of combination of all of those, because actually when I see things that have generated purely out of an operational strand from workforce management or um, an operational workforce planning from a finance function or indeed a pure HR function, there are bits that get missed when each group approaches it. So often a finance function won't be thinking in terms of capabilities, in terms of skills. A fine, uh, an HR function may not be thinking, will, will probably be thinking purely in terms of um, talent management approaches and won't be thinking about things that we might call demand management and demand optimization, which is a crucial first step when you do workforce planning. And indeed, on the resource management side, that may well be done at such a local level that when you start trying to increase this and do it at scale, you miss things. So the great workforce planning happens when you can combine all of those areas together. So it sounds like a lot of those activities may be happening within teams across the business. They may not be joined. It may not be badged with workforce planning. You know, a lot of our listeners on the podcast are going to be in the field of learning and development, you know, possibly stretching into talent. So if you were speaking to a learning development professional thinking, actually, now, what Adam's talking about is really interesting. Where do I dip my toe in? Where do I start to understand the contributions as a learning professional I could have or impact I could have on workforce planning? Where should they start? I start by, I, I suppose the, the place I always start is with why. If, if you, you know, no matter what professional you are within HR or elsewhere, then why? And often the why for, um, often the why for a learning professional um, is around trying to build capability to build being what I what what I term one of the seven B's and um, the seven workforce planning levers that you can pull that create and build capability so they'll be thinking about it from that perspective of we want to create some capability but what specific capability when does that capability when is that capability needed in what workers does that capability need to be created? To what level does that capability need to be created? Those are all workforce planning questions. They're all the questions that you would ask to try and understand truly what is it that you need. I've seen a lot of learning professionals who have simply been asked to create, deliver um, a particular learning outcome. But we know there's no, often there's no real understanding there of 
what difference that will make to an organization. And that's what we're all about, whether we are in finance or we're in HR, whether we are learning professionals or whether we're something else within an HR function. We often think because we're in that field, it all relates to the people, but actually those workers only exist in that concept because they are part of a workforce, because they're part of an organization. So what we're trying to create is successful organizations. So therefore, we're trying to think about what is the organization trying to achieve and therefore what we're trying to bridge. What is the gap we're trying to bridge? And that's what we do when a learning professional will be trying to create that capability. But to understand really the difference that it can make and fundamentally, which is such a often such a difficult question to answer, which is what is the return on investment for this learning intervention? Workforce planning is what allows you to do that. So those work, those learning professionals who are, who are watching, who perhaps find themselves being constantly challenged about a particular initiative, connect it back to what the organisation is trying to do. Demonstrate what that learning intervention will do to create one of those seven rights. And that's the place that I would certainly say is a great place to start. I think it's interesting looking at, at the different options or the lenses that people will look at something through. So, you know, it, it makes sense that if you're a learning professional or an HR professional, you're going to look naturally, we would presume through a people lens. So when someone says, actually, we need to deliver more of that, the you know, you're looking at potentially some sort of efficiency, but often how do we get more resource in? How do we bring in attempts at Christmas? You know, when back at the start of my career in retail or when I've worked in hospitality, you up the workforce at certain times and that's built into your business calendar, your finance calendar that becomes the, the, the way of things happening. I think it's interesting to how do, how do people start to challenge their thinking around that, that it isn't just looking at it through my lens and, you know, there might be a possible other way of us meeting those challenges and, you know, the creativity of, of less predictability over the last few months. I think there's some really interesting thoughts as to how people can broaden their, their horizons as to we don't just need more bodies or we don't just need to give our existing bodies those other skills. What are the other types of things people can be looking at? Again, again, it's a case of it's a case of always start, always start with why. It's going through that why that helps you that helps you start to answer those questions and start to uncover the different ways. I also advocate really being clear once you've once you've worked through once you've understood understood the why and then you've worked through the gap. You know what is that gap between the supply of the workforce and the demand for that workforce? Because that's what we're trying to bridge when we think about trying to create these interventions on a learning perspective or, 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 or whichever. So if there's a gap that needs to be bridged, try to understand the totality of it. What is the totality of that gap? When does it need to be bridged? And if it isn't bridged, what are the implications of those things? When you really understand the problem statement, that's what starts to open up the possibilities of what else you can do. It's quite easy for people to um go to a conference and see someone it's in see someone inspiring talk about something that they've done in their own organization and just think oh we could do that in our organization or watch a podcast and 
and say, oh, we could do exactly the same thing where we are. But actually, that not, might not be right for that organisation. It's what I what I sort of tend to refer as stealing other organisations artificial grass. There's a reason that lots of organisations have spent money on beanbag chairs and ping pong tables and then don't know what value that's going to bring. Why do they do that? Well, some of the tech giants had great performance and great engagement and they thought, well, if we do the same, then our engagement will be great. But there was no cause and effect that they'd established. They hadn't understood what the problem was that they were trying to solve. So once we're clear on what the problem is we're trying to solve, actually that opens up a lot more possibilities. And by then taking the time to consider different initiatives, and what I strongly advocate, which is to work more broadly and collaborate, working with those frontline areas, because you might be thinking, um, as a learning professional, well, great, we can have a learn. We've got a learning intervention that would work fantastically here. But if you speak to the people on the front line who are dealing with it, they may well have a much better solution, a solution which is cheaper, quicker to implement, a one that they'll actually get behind. So take a step back, understand the problem, and bring together a community of people who are close to the problem, can bring you expertise from other areas, take some outside thoughts bring those together. And if you've got multiple initiatives, analyze them, run a cost benefit analysis to try and compare which is going to be the best initiative. Does it deliver the return on investment? Does it deliver us value for money? Does it solve the problem we were trying to solve in the first place? By taking that broader approach and understanding the problem, that means that you can end up with much better solutions, and crucially solutions that will be delivered rather than just a great idea. So it sounds like, you know, some, some simple principles of understanding the problem, really understanding the context, and you can't just steal Nextdoor's ideas or similar companies' ideas because the context, once you get inside a company, is different, whether that's budget, culture, history, structure, all of those things will be different. And Absolutely. then engaging engaging with those frontline users so that they they can be part of that problem because, you know, in the ivory tower, we can all come up with some great ideas, but what's going to work? And then some test, learn, evaluate, implement and make that more iterative. So, you know, some I think some really good principles just that can be immediately transferred into any approach to learning, not just workforce planning, but any learning initiative should have those at its core as well. Yeah, you're, abs you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So Adam, one of the things that we'll hear often, not just in learning, but across business is that, you know, machines and robots are going to take over the world. So all learning can be pushed online and AI or machine learning will do everything for us. What's your view on the whole drive towards AI tech robotics and the fact that machines will replace us all? <laughs> um, it's, it's a great question. Um, Technology um, automation in, in the form of, you know, whether it be robotic process automation or machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's it's important and it's not going to go away. And in fact, what it's doing is making uh, making many of our lives much easier um, by having uh, having interventions around technology. What it can start to do is take lower value work, start to eradicate that, take away the 
tasks that we do that are repetitive, that infuriate us, and remove those so that we can start to focus on greater value work. Undoubtedly, there are going to be people whose jobs will come to an end as a result of technology. Many, far, far many others whose roles will be fundamentally changed in some way as a result of this technology. So it's not going away and it's something that we're going to, going to have to accept. But one of the things that technology does is it creates new jobs. So every time we have gone through an industrial revolution, jobs have been eradicated, new jobs have been created. There are now roles that exist um, that have never existed before. And there are children, you know, the children who are, who are at school today, you know, your kids, James, my kids, they are, you know, the jobs that they will have as an opportunity when they're older don't exist today. Some will continue, many more will be created that we can't even envisage right now. So there is always going to be a place for people doing work within organisations. So that's a critical thing to recognise. And therefore, if there's a place for people, from a learning perspective, there's always going to be a place for learning. There's going, still going to be a requirement for people to, for people, human people, to learn new skills, to, de to develop new skills, to take on new knowledge, and to be able to use that, um, to be able to use that to make a difference. Where we're really seeing technology make a considerable difference is back to that aspect of capability that I mentioned earlier, skills, knowledge knowledge is that is you know the information that we've got readily available in our heads um there was a time if you rewind the clock back 10 20 years that if you're using something like microsoft excel you would need to have a great deal of knowledge about microsoft excel but what about now even i google constantly how how to do particular excel formula i don't need that knowledge as we've got greater democratization of information through technology, knowledge is actually becoming increasingly less important within the field of work. Great to an extent, because that actually allows us to increase diversity, uh, the diversity of our workforce and the diversity of thought that we have in our workforce, because now we're able to bring in different people to which may have been in organisations traditionally, because it's now being opened up. So we are starting to see that shift. So there's going to be a change from a learning perspective in that learning may well be less about creating things that people can know and more to do with creating things that people can access, creating information that people can access. But then the final bit of can everything be, be shifted online? We've done this a lot over COVID. COVID has meant that those who were working in a learning environment have had to do a significant shift to doing it in an online way. And we would recognise that learning objectives are learning objectives are achieved. Learning is passed on. Is it here to stay? I don't think so. I think naturally, once you know, we don't know what form the pandemic will take. Um, my confidence is that over time we will be able to start to return back to many of the things that we hold so dear, which is to be able um, to work 
in a community where we are seeing each other face to face and interacting face to face. And it's not that we return to, um, you know, the way that we were all sitting in our cubicles, you know, the, almost a modern equivalent of the dark satanic mills, but that we're still able to collaborate face to face, person to person on um, as we go forward. And I think that is still going to be valued within the learning environment. Being able to really pick on the genuine nuances of conversation and of verbal and nonverbal cues is much easier to do when you can actually physically see everyone rather than if you can only see the top part of their head. And if you're trying to do that at the same time that you're presenting something on PowerPoint, you probably don't get to see that. So we are definitely missing something by not being able to do learning in a face to face way. And I, I cannot wait for us to be able to return back to it. I think it's, it's interesting in terms of those changes we've had in COVID and some of the challenges we've seen. But what I've seen from learning colleagues is they're currently getting presented with challenges to create learning on. And reflecting back on what you've said, they may almost fall into their investigation of how they put that together, falls into workforce planning because, you know, people will be asked to put together a programme on working from home, put together a programme on leading a remote team, put together something on digitalisation of your business. And those those are sometimes the sophistication of the initial arts of a learning team. So, yeah. you know, th those, those are some very common challenges people will face. So, you know, I'd love your sort of perspective on, on how you can actually approach those in a slightly more holistic way than let's just whack on a two hour Zoom call on how to work from home. And it's back to that question of why, what's the, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? What is the challenge that we face? It is presented in that second hand of here is the specified output that I wish to create rather than this is the problem that we're trying to achieve. What I and the reason I love doing what I'm doing is I don't pretend to have all the all the answers on the solution. I bring together the people who have those genuine answers. What my focus is is on clearly defining the problem. It was there was a quote that um, I think it's been famously ascribed to um, to Albert Einstein, but I think actually came from a professor at Yale, um, which was that if I had, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 of those minutes defining the problem. Because anything else, if you if you try and rush to solution, and that's naturally what we that's naturally what we do as people, we nat we naturally rush to solution mode but often it means that we don't define the problem worse it means that we might rush the solution but we're probably not going to do it ourselves we're probably going to delegate that down to someone else and so the nuances of the problem then get um, then get lost to try and create um, a nebulous presentation on working from home well quite quite easy to do working from home this is a home this is what working looks like this is working from home but actually what's the problem that we're trying to solve we might be trying to solve um, an issue about people who are working from home are actually doing so on dining room chairs or 
odd dodgy or an odd, odd dodgy three-legged stool that's a bit wobbly. They're trying to do it on a table that isn't suitable. They're trying to do it from a laptop where the screen's too small. So we've got problems about musculoskeletal issues and stress in in our you know in our physical nature. So is that the problem that we're trying to solve? Because it relates to relates to working from home. But that is a very different problem that we might try and solve through learning to when people are working from home, they are feeling a lot more distant from their colleagues. They don't they feel less engaged. They're feeling less like they're part of the team. It's impacting their mindset and their ability to deliver for the organization. The learning output you need to create for that is very, very it's fundamentally different. Both are a presentation about working from home which was the ask from the original stakeholder. So by going back to that, why? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? What are we trying to achieve? Helps us formulate whether it's a learning intervention or something else. Because you might sit there and go, well, how long is it going to take to be able to provide learning of how someone might adjust their home setting in order to be more comfortable and has, have less musculoskeletal issues? How long will it take us to create that? What will be the cost of creating that? And then what will be the cost of the time that people will then spend doing that? And for many people who can't really make too many adjustments to a three-legged stool, is that going to solve the problem? Should we just solve the problem by spending money on giving our workforce the peripherals at home, chair, keyboard, the monitors? Shall we do it that way? It's taking a demand side approach to solving that same problem so always start with why i think that's you know key to a learning professional which are sometimes as you said presented with a a wrapped up solution of this is what you must deliver some sales training or working from home training of having that confidence and the skills to be able to drill down onto that problem and and look at the more holistic solutions that that might be there and maybe not trying to solve every possible situation as well, because your problem might be the three legged stool. Someone else's problem might be the flatmate who's on furlough and wants to party till three in the morning. <laughs> so, you know, it's again thinking about those different parameters and trying to create the culture of people being able to support themselves as well. So I think back to your point on user engagement. Adam, I was interested in an article I read that you wrote a little while ago about capability decay and how COVID had contributed to that, but it happens anyway. Do you want to talk yeah. us through a little bit more about that and why it's important? Of course. So, um, so capability decay, you, you know, you may know it by things like skill fade, um, skill decay, but this, this more, this, you know, it's fundamental about, fundamentally about this broader concept of capability. Of capability. So over time, there are three things that will undoubtedly decay. Your skills, your knowledge and your physiology. And let's just take let's just take, um, you know, any example of that um, from a knowledge perspective. One of the things that um, happens, I think, in organisations across the world um, is that during their main holiday season, which you know, for us, it's, you know, it's Christmas. Um, people take a period of annual leave and then in the first week of January, everyone's straight onto the IT department to try and get a password reset. Why? Because over the one week, two weeks of annual leave, they've forgotten their password. 
knowledge. Every single day up until then, they've gone on to autopilot to automatically type that password in and the first day back from annual leave, they can't remember for the life of what it is. Knowledge has decayed. Think about the things that you might be you might be skilled in that you might be able to do. Um, I like to think that I'm reasonably adequate at golf um, and I'm really not. I'm dreadful. Um, but if I don't continue to practice, I really deteriorate my ability, my skill really deteriorates in that regard. So it's something that that you need to practice. Um, and, you know, in terms of physiology, those who might engage in genuine physical activity, again, their physical abilities, their strength, um, their muscle memory will start to decay over time. So unless something is constantly used, it will start to decay. So what does that what, what does that mean? So when you start, when people when tests have been done along this, um, what it means is that those who um, might be engaged in one role where they have used a particular skill for a length of time and then stepped away into a slightly different role. Um, we might, you know, we might interview them, we might look at a CV and we'll see what they've done and we'll go, well, we'll be able to bring them in to do a role that was similar, not, to, you know, that has got, requires many of the capabilities that they were using, not in the current role, but in a role that they were doing before that. And actually the current role had some value. But then the assumption is made that you can just drop them straight into some of the previous scenarios and they'll be able to do that. And those things take time to come back skills and the ability decays constantly constantly now the thing the uh, why you know that that is it's a constant thing that we need to recognize that's what happens that's what happens as humans if we don't continue to do something if we don't if we don't continue to think about something within our knowledge it fades if we don't continue to practice skills our ability fades if we don't continue to do physical elements our physical abilities um, fade but this is particularly pertinent when you think about covid because as this has gone on the abilities that people had that were largely centered around working in an office or a factory in a particular way in a particular set of circumstances that is being lost that ability is decaying so the skills the knowledge the physiology the, the physiology surrounded that that made that successful is decaying every single day that is being lost to an extent so when organizations are thinking that they may well start to reopen up previous ways of doing something so they might be thinking well you know when we get past this second uh, you know this second rise in the pandemic so when we start looking at early 2021 let's reopen one of our facilities and we can start to be, start to bring people back in that can't be done without some form of capability building that is that that centers on learning that is going to be a critical component um, to people being able to return back to the work that they were doing just because they used to do it and it all worked fine back in february doesn't certainly you know by no means means that a year later in February 2021, they'll be able to return back to doing that in a seamless way. Because the absence of not doing it not only decays it, what decays it even faster is having to have done something in a completely different way. So they've spent the last year trying to achieve the same objectives, but in a fundamentally different way. 
And what organisations might be trying to do is return back to previous way of doing things. So that makes it even more difficult to try and return back to that same level of knowledge, skill and physiology. I think, you know, you can recognise that in all parts of our lives as well. You know, we had that weird period where you couldn't really go out apart from one walk a day or one bout of exercise. And I certainly know as I've started to venture back out, you almost feel like you're in an alien planet and you're doing things that you haven't done for ages. You know, I used getting on the tube or getting on a train or going out and being part of the wider world suddenly feels strange because it's not just part of the normal. And sometimes you flick back in quite quickly, but there's other things where you just, it's taking some time, it's just still very, very odd. Yes, and it's different, you know, because we think about, because we've often framed this around this concept of skill, we try and think about really tangible skills. I mean, and it happens across all levels of skill, but we forget, you know, we, we really aren't conscious of those little things. You know, the password reset, um, the, you know, knowing the best place to stand on the, you know, when you're waiting for the train or the tube, all those little new and all those little things that we have learnt and developed over a period of time are the things that often are the first things that we that we forget. Absolutely, and I can see going back into an office, almost some of those shortcuts, the people you should go, the way of behaving in an office. You know, it almost seems quite strange when you go out for a meal or a drink or any of those other things. It feels slightly alien. Yeah. And people are going to be going back into environments that are maybe familiar, but different. Yes. You know, and we've seen we've seen people who've been through that consistently when they've been working in hospitality with changing rules every week where they're having to evolve to that. But we're all going to be facing that at some point soon. So really interesting to know what can organizations and individuals do to best support themselves and their people through that a great thing to do is to remember that just because people are on furlough doesn't mean they can't learn it was the one great one of the great provisions that came out of it that though those who were on furlough were you know were, were by rights certainly not um, not permitted to work because that would defeat the purpose of it but learning was very much permissible. So utilise that opportunity. If you've got people who are off on furlough, start to think about what are going to be the gaps that you will have. And this is this is what workforce planning is about. It's not necessarily about thinking what we need to solve. Um, you know, what is the problem that we have right now? But it's to start to think forward to say, let's assume we got back. We we are back in the in the office in the factory in February. We'll have spent 12 months out of it. What do we think are going to be the gaps that people will have in terms of their capability? And how can we start to bridge that gap with interventions today? It's about what we can do today to help solve the problems of tomorrow. So start to think about what those issues are. What are the things that people are likely to have forgotten about? What are the things where people might have the greatest degree of uncertainty and nervousness about when they return back to the office and then look at what are the interventions that you can do while people are on furlough um, and if you've got people who was who you've not got on furlough who are still working look at what are the interventions you can you can start to trickle in now or ensure that you've got the time set aside in january in early february to be able to bring people back to the way that you want to be able to work rather than putting people through the unnecessary stress 
of forcing them into a situation where they, they are genuinely not going to have the right level of capability to achieve your outcomes. Because organisational objectives are only achieved by successful people. They are not achieved by simply having people there. Adam, one of your recent successes has been you've recently finished your first book. So congratulations. Thank you. So what is the book about? Just a two minute snapshot. Yeah. So the book, the book is called Agile Workforce Planning. I, I was self-taught in the field of workforce planning. It's something that I had to learn as I, as I went um, within particular roles. And so I would learn by doing and I'd, I'd learn by uh, trying to digest what was existing. And what I found so much was that the traditional concepts around strategic workforce planning kept on bumping up against unnecessary issues. And I think much of it has been damaged by a craft of um, uh, people coming in on a consultant basis into organisations to do workforce planning and the end result being the plan. And you'd think it was that way because it's called workforce planning. But by, leave, by having an end result as a plan, an organisation would then be disrupted and the plan was, would be worthless. And that was what much of the narrative was that I was hearing from organisations. They tried it, they created a plan and then everything changed. So I looked to create something that was much more agile rather than it being, um, rather than it being a defined process with a particular end. It was something that would become a constant process where what you were trying to achieve was not the workforce plan. The workforce plan was a stepping stone to create the workforce. And so I developed this methodology, which, uh, which, I, which I developed into the Agile Workforce Planning methodology, because I drew from those Agile principles of constantly looking and reevaluating and reassessing and appreciating that you can't write a plan now that you can guarantee with certainty that will look out five, 10, 25 years. It's about creating something that's part of business approaches and making sure that you are constantly reassessing and, re and re evolving the plan to create that right mix of work and workforce. I very much see it as understanding of being in a boat, understanding the destination that you're sailing to. A great workforce planning is about um, adjusting the, the, the sails and, sh and shifting the rudder as the waves hit and the winds change. Great workforce planning is about doing that and continuing to sail to the right direction. It's not simply around getting to the start, saying that's the island and then leaving it. So when will people be able to get their hands on the book? 3rd of January, it will be available for release, um, although it's currently available for pre-order from um, all good bookshops. Fabulous. And if anyone wants to follow you in the interim or find out more about your thinking, how's the best way of them doing that? Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, um, Adam Gibson tweets, um, and I, my website, agileworkforceplanning.com. There's a number, of, there's a great deal of content on there and, and blogs that I've written on the subject. We'll make sure that all of those details are in the notes below the podcast. Adam, thank you very much for joining us today. James, thank you. Always a pleasure. Take care.